Before police could raid Breonna Taylor's apartment, they needed a search warrant signed by a judge, but it's often a mystery as to which judge approved what search warrant. That's because most local judges don't sign the warrants in a way they can be identified. I mean, this is a very routine part of policing to some extent, but it's also a very hidden part of policing. And we just wanted to know what was going on. From the digital journalists of WDRP.com, this is Uncovered, a behind-the-scenes look at stories affecting education, business, criminal justice, and more in Louisville, Kentucky. And now for the show. This is Chris Otts of WDRB.com, and I'm here with Jake Ryan of the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting. Later, we'll bring in WDRB's Travis Ragsdale. Jake, you've spent the past few months digging into search warrants issued in Jefferson County. Tell us why. So it started shortly after the protests began in downtown Louisville related to the police killing of Breonna Taylor. Shortly after that, I put in a records request to the uh, Jefferson County Circuit Clerk and asked just for all the search warrants. And after some back and forth, it took a couple weeks, I was able to uh, go down to the clerk's office where she had assembled, uh, the clerk had assembled uh, stacks of search warrants. Um, because I keep these in copy, like in paper format, I could not get them electronically, and so I had to sift through, I would say, a thou- thousands, maybe, th- hundreds, certainly, and pulling just the residential search warrants. We pulled them out of a stack, we made a separate stack, we removed all the staples, we copied them, we restapled them. We took them, you know, to our office. We scanned them in. So basically, to the question, I've just been digging into all the search warrants that police in Jefferson County have asked judges in Jefferson County to sign and approve and then ultimately execute. So a search warrant is uh, basically permission um, from a judge to a law enforcement officer to invade someone's personal space. This is Louisville Metro Police body camera footage of a search warrant executed in 2018. A search warrant is just a document uh, that has the seal of the court stamped on it. It has a signature of a judge signed on it, and it has some a varying degree uh, statement of facts about a, a place, a person, or a circumstance that you know, indicates some type of criminality. Um, police, they have to write up a document called an affidavit that they take to a judge that has to meet the lowest evidentiary bar, probable cause. So it's basically just like a police officer or a law enforcement officer has some type of reason to believe that a crime is being committed or has been committed at a place. They go to a judge. The judge looks it over. They sign it or they don't sign it. And then if they sign it, that's approval. And then the officer can take that and then execute the search warrant, meaning go search uh, whatever you know is listed on that document. <laughs> 
Breonna Taylor is now a name gaining national attention. The We're learning more about an overnight raid near PRP that now has the world's attention. The raid that killed Breonna Taylor. The 26-year-old ER tech and former decorated EMT was killed in a botched was killed LMPD in what's been called a botched LMPD drug raid. Jake, why did a search warrant play such a critical role in the death of Brianna Taylor in Louisville. You know, from what I, from from my understanding, is the search warrant was 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 at issue in the in the killing of Brianna Taylor because one, it was a no knock warrant, which have since been banned in Louisville. He says when officers busted inside her apartment, Taylor's boyfriend Kenneth Walker shot at police, thinking they were intruders. Police returned fire, killing Taylor. But essentially that warrant and the warrants that accompanied that warrant that allowed police to, to uh, search a few other residences uh, related to th their investigation, it basically just allows the police to bust up in a house without knocking, without introducing themselves in any manner whatsoever. They're kind of like the quintessential movie search warrant where they just barge into a house with a battering ram or a foot to the door or something like that. I think once that came to light, a lot of people took issue with that, um, considering there are constitutional protections for a person's own personal space. And um, just that the, you know, the evidence that went into the warrant, I think, was also called into question. And a U.S. postal inspector in Louisville said today that Metro Police did not use his office to verify that a drug suspect was receiving packages at Taylor's apartment. He also said no package. WDRB had reported that, that um, the officer that applied for the warrant used information that has been called into question uh, since then. And one other issue was that you couldn't read that judge's signature on that warrant. So a lot of people were wondering in the early days of, you know, the scrutiny on the warrant was who even signed this? So... At the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting, we have the unique and, and very awesome opportunity where we can, like, see something happening, take a step back, and look at the big picture. So we saw that there was an issue, and people were, were raising an issue with the Breonna Taylor warrants. So we decided to just look at all of them. Uh, we looked at the police department's annual report, and they had, you know— high-level numbers about the numbers of search warrants that they executed, but we really couldn't find any detail about the about those warrants. We didn't know how many were at houses, you know. We didn't know which judges were signing the warrants. We didn't know, you know, how these warrants were being executed. So we decided that we would just look at all of them. And initially, you know, the clerk said they had about 8,000 in the time frame that we wanted, which was the past few years. But a lot of these warrants include things like a phone or a request for a GPS device to put on someone's car or a suspicious package. And we decided that we would just limit these down to just limit these down to just people's houses so we could just see how police and what police are doing to get access into people's houses and ultimately ultimately like what what is the result of that, you know? Uh, because there's so much that we just don't know with this super I mean this is a very routine part of policing to some extent, but it's also a very hidden part of policing. And we just wanted to know what was going on. Jake, as you poured over all these paper search warrants, what questions stood out? We didn't know which judge was signing these warrants.
there's a lot of information in these warrants, and, and kind of one of the key questions that we wanted to answer was, which judge are approving the most warrants? And we couldn't know that because, as you've seen from the reporting, the judges don't sign their names in a legible manner. They sign it with these flashy loops, this scribble. It's just indecipherable. You have no idea. You can't even, like, recognize it, even if you have the context of which the judge, you know, who the judge. Sure, there are some judges that sign them legibly, but the vast majority don't. And so it leaves open this huge question of, like, who is even saying that this is okay? One thing I think it's important to understand is that we haven't looked at all the warrants yet. We've only looked at a fraction, and that's 230 warrants, which represents, you know, kind of like a uh, a sample, basically, of all the search warrants. But of those... WDRB and the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting analyzed more than 200 search warrants executed in Louisville this year and found only 65 of them have legible signatures. That means nearly... 70%. uh, Pretty much. It was about 70% of the warrants that we looked at, we could not read which judge had signed the, the warrant. That one looks familiar to me, but I can't read any of these and I have no idea. I mean, that we asked like attorneys, we asked other judges. I mean, that looks like a G and maybe an H. And they could not read who signed the but warrant. Some of these. these are just some of the signatures from the hundreds of search warrants in our investigation. And this is the one we saw And so that, you know, like people in the story said, like it just speaks to this transparency issue and accountability issue is that when a judge comes to your, or I'm sorry, when a police officer comes to your house with a warrant, you should be able to ask to see that warrant and see which judge said that this is okay. And a vast majority of the time right now, it's unlikely that you will be able to do that because you won't be able to read the judge's handwriting. And Jake... I think it's important that we clarify this for our listeners. Lots of people might say, well, hey, you can't read my signature either. But the issue here is that there's no other identifying mark on these search warrants for the most part, such as a printed line underneath or a pre-filled line or something that would identify the judge who signed the warrant. Right, that's a great point. And this is not just, oh, we can't read their signatures. Because you're right, you can't read my signature. But there is nothing else on this warrant that indicates which judge signed the warrant. And that is a problem. Jake, are there any court records that, uh, you know, a database, for example, where the judges, at least in the court system, know who approved what search search warrant if it's actually illegible on the warrant itself? I don't know. That's a good question. So there, I know of two documents that could answer that question. One is an internal index that the clerk refused to provide to us. That is uh, is kind of like an informal tracking of warrants, and they said that r- providing that would take too much time redacting information. Another document that is within the court system is basically just a cheat sheet of signatures that clerks use to plug in information into the electronic court system database. Well, we could, If we had access to that, then we could compare signatures and we could see which judge are signing them. And a lot of judges, you know, the judges we talked to that didn't really see a problem with this just said, just that, just go to every judge's courtroom, pull a case, 
uh, pull documents from that courtroom and compare the signatures. So there is a there is a way to do it, but it's cumbersome and it's more than just the average person that is subjected to a search warrant might have the resources to be able to do or the time to be to be able to do an expertise really. So there is a way, but it's just it's not as it, it should be much easier to do that. So, Jake, you're telling me the court system in Jefferson County has a cheat sheet of all 30 judges' signatures who could approve search warrants that says this signature identifies this judge, but they won't give that to us or give that out publicly. Is that right? Yeah, it's exactly right. I mean, I was in the clerk's office when I saw this piece of paper. Like, I saw a clerk using it, and I said... Hi, can I have that and or a copy of that? Because it is, it, it seems to me, an inherently public record, right? It's just a piece of paper that has a copy of the signature and the judge's name underneath of it printed. Um, and that, and I was kind of redirected to another section of the court administration. I asked that court administrator. She said that that would be an internal list that they did not want to give up due to security reasons, that they didn't want people copying judges' signatures. Even though, I think it's important to add, a judge's signature is on thousands. Honestly, I don't even think you could count how many documents each judge's signature is on because they sign so many documents every single day that are part of the public record. Let's bring in WDRB reporter Travis Ragsdale, who co-reported this piece with Jake. Travis, fair to say, this is not a story that uh, you might typically see on TV. How did you approach this from a broadcast perspective? Yeah, so it's a complicated issue, right? Um, I mean, we're talking about these search warrants that are, uh, like you said and like Jake said, are cumbersome, they're hard to understand in some cases, so we had to figure out a way to, to make that work on TV. Uh, I think our photographer in this case, Zach Crabtree, did a wonderful job in, I mean, you see those signatures and like Jake said, I mean, they're they're nonsense and, and like many signatures are, but there's nothing else on those search warrants to identify um, those judges. And so from a TV's perspective, it was very easy to just show those signatures and say, you can't tell which judge made the final decision to say something like this was okay. We should know what judge is issuing what warrant in what case. The public should know. Can you tell who this is? Because we can't. Um, and that was kind of the, the theme that we took with the story was saying, hey, if, if if, you know, people that are in the courthouse every day can't figure out who these signatures are, how is somebody who's just had police rifling through their home able to figure out who said that that was okay? Travis, you guys did find one judge who, uh, before there was ever any public attention on this issue, makes it a point to identify herself when signing these warrants. And, and the thing is... <laughs> We are in a time when 
we've had protesters outside our courthouse doors for more than 100 days. Yeah, that was District Court Judge Julie Kalin, and what she does is, and she admits, she says, you know, she said my signature, nobody could tell my signature if it was just by itself. So what she does is she just writes, prints her last name um, underneath it um, so everybody can see who signed it. And these are things that, as a judiciary, we could do that would be so simple and I believe would truly... Um, improve people's confidence in how warrants are sought and granted. She said that she realized this was an issue actually several months ago when she was, uh, had, we, I, th I believe it was a suppression hearing, um, and she was looking at the search warrant and couldn't figure out who signed it. And that kind of clicked something in her mind. She said, well, I don't want another judge to have to sit here and try and figure out who signed this search warrant. So that's when she started just printing her name underneath it. And one of the interesting things I, th I think we did, um, it wasn't in the, in, the, in the television story, but we asked Judge Kalen. How much time does it take for you to print your name underneath your signature? Maybe five seconds. To show us how long it takes her to sign her name and then print underneath it. All right, let me clock. Um... I'm not gonna try to be super fast either. I'm gonna no, go my normal, normal writing speed. Yeah. Okay, it's, all right, go. And Jake, I think it took her all of three seconds in total. Oh, do the whole thing. Do yeah, do, whole. yeah, do the, oh, okay. do the signature and then write under it. Do yeah. signature and write under it. All right. Ready? Reset and go. Uh, to actually do that and just take that extra step of printing her name underneath. So the fact that judges do not necessarily have to identify themselves, at least in a transparent way, when they approve these intrusive search warrants. From a reporter's perspective, you might think, okay, there's 30-something judges in Jefferson County. Who has accountability for this issue? Who can explain why there's not a very simple policy rule that says, write your name legibly underneath the signature, or let's have some other way to identify which judge approved which search warrant. So when you went looking for answers on that, who did you find and and what did so they say? You could be on the bench, you could be at home at night, and basically you have a police officer come and he presents you with two pieces of paper. One is an affidavit. Yeah, so we talked to um, Chief Circuit Judge Angela McCormick-Bissig, and as Chief Circuit Court Judge, she has the ability to uh, create rules or at least ask for a vote on how judges uh, act and policies at the courthouse. Um, you know, we presented our findings to her, and essentially, and I think Jake mentioned this, is her her position was that I guess I disagree with the premise that they're not identified. Like, I don't think any of those judges are hidden. You can eventually find out who served a search warrant. I think any of those judges could be identified from the lay person on the street that's walking down the street could identify a judge based upon a lay person walking down the street. No, but like I said, there's a process through the courts that you can go to to contest one of those warrants. She did not see a problem with somebody not being able to identify who the judge was at the moment the search warrant is uh, presented to them. 
And I think part of that, one thing she kept repeating. And like I said, the legal standard doesn't change judge to judge. So the basis, the legal basis has to be there for the document. So although it's a, a person would know at some point and they don't know maybe the second it's being served, I, I've, I struggled a little bit to see what difference that would make in terms of whether the document was valid. Was that all judges are held to the same standard. The law doesn't change judge to judge. That is true, but that is, you know, assuming that there is no misconduct going on or that each judge's perspective on the police officer that's presenting the evidence and the evidence itself is exactly the same, which I think is probably fair to say it's, it's a stretch to say that every judge has the same perspective on every single issue. I found that comment really um, mystifying frankly, because what does it matter what the standard is? What we want to know is which judge said that this search warrant meets the standard. Anyway, Jake, Judge Bissick said that it is possible to identify which judge approved which search warrant, but she suggested a path to doing that that seems awfully uh, inconvenient for the person who might want to answer that question. Tell us about that. Right, yeah. So she suggested basically that you just go to each court, pull some documents from the respective judge over that court, you know, and compare it. Kind of like a, a fishing expedition to see that. The average person would have to know how to navigate the court system, which is complicated, especially right now during a pandemic when you can't even access the courts. You have to, you know, a lot of things are done virtually. So you would just have to go and and just get lucky, basically, um, looking through the 30 judges between district and circuit court. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you could, I mean, you could do it. I mean, that might be the way we have to end up eventually doing this, but it's not a transparent way that, you know, the courts, I believe one of the, Ted Shao said that the courts should operate in every other instance. You know, everything is, should be transparent in a, in a court of law. This one thing is, is not. If there were any changes to result from this reporting, Jake, uh, who, ha- who would have the authority to make them? Basically, Judge Bissig, would she be the person? From my understanding, I think if we wanted to change this on a local level, it would be Judge Angela McCormick-Bissig, maybe Judge Ann Haney, who is the chief district court judge. On a statewide level, I think we'd have to look at Chief Justice John Mitten to see if he would kind of put an order to all the courts to do this type of practice. Uh, Or, uh, kind of more of a grassroots level, the judges could just be like Julie Kalin and just write their name in print underneath their signature. Well, we're really looking forward to the additional reporting that comes out uh, of this project. But I want to end with uh, getting each of your thoughts on this. Uh, I've been trying behind the scenes to get uh, the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting and WDRB together to join forces for, I don't know, maybe seven years now. It's really gratifying to see it uh, starting to happen uh, Jake, what was your take uh, on on working with us uh, and how that turned out? 
I think the partnership is going to be really good because I think we kind of bring both of our respective audiences together. And so we'll have a little bit of overlap. I think there's the Venn diagram of local media consumption, right? And I think your all's Venn diagram, obviously, or, you know, your circle is obviously much bigger than ours. But creating that overlap, I think, will be really good for just local news and also good for the people that are consuming this news to see, to kind of break through this, like, fake news biased kind of... Um, stain that is is kind of like permeating the culture of like information and facts right now so i'm super excited about it um yeah i'm not gonna shave though (laughs) yeah i i should say when you guys were doing your your tv spots together it was definitely clear who's the regular tv guy and who's the radio guy Travis, your Kate thoughts calls, on... Kate, Kate calls that our, a, t-shirt, a blazer over a t-shirt is the unofficial KYCIR uniform. So <laughs> that's just kind of how it goes. Travis, your thoughts on, on the partnership? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's great. Like Jake said, I think that for the community at large, this is a really good thing. Um, you know, sometimes uh, TV news is a kind of a conveyor belt, so to speak, is, you know, we have nine and a half hours of newscasts every day at WDRB that we have to fill with news. And so sometimes we have to focus on that story that day. And then you move on to the next thing the next day. Being able to partner with somebody like Jake, where he can kind of take a step back and look at the broader view of things and have the time to look at those things um, without being bogged down by some of the uh other constraints that we have in TV, um, being able to use that resource, I think, is is invaluable in this story. And I think moving forward uh, to the people who, you know, con- consume journalism in this area. Um, so, yeah, I think it's I think it's a great thing. And I'm looking forward to the other projects that come out of it. You can read our work, including this story, at WDRB.com, and you can read the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting's work at KYCIR.org and support them financially. They're a nonprofit, part of Louisville Public Media. Uh, I give, and you should too. Travis, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Chris. And Jake, thanks for making your first, hopefully first of many appearances on Uncovered. Thanks, Chris. I really look forward to doing more of these. The Uncovered podcast is a production of WDRB Media. Please subscribe, review, and rate wherever you get your podcasts.